let's start with your your upbringing. Um, talk to me about where you grew up, what your family life was like. You know, some of the things that kind of stand out to you as a as a child. Some of those moments. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, Jerry. Appreciate it. And. You know, I did not grow up in Texas. I did not grow up in the Valley. And there's an old saying, if you didn't grow up in Texas, uh, never admit to it. And, um, you know, I like to say I got here as fast as I could. But I grew up in a little town called White House, Ohio. And um, my mom and my dad were really my role models growing up. Um, Neither of them had the opportunity to graduate high school or go to college. So they really pushed education big time for my sister and for me. And um, I mean, just everything about my parents, just always encouraging the dreams, the ambitions. I remember I was in high school and I was complaining that we didn't have a library in our community and there's a countywide library system. My parents said, well, then do something about it. So I mounted a campaign as a high schooler to get a branch of the library in our community. And um, I remember riding my bicycle all around the county um, and then recording everything, um, you know, with pictures and putting on a big poster board and going with TV cameras to plead my case at the county library board. And uh, we got we, we, we got a little library branch, you know, and, and, and it, it, that was that was kind of my first um, my first aha that mm-hmm. if you stick with something and you're persistent and you just don't take no for an answer that, you know, you'll, you'll sooner or later you're going to get there. Yeah. yeah wow. Exactly. So how big is this town? Because you're, you know, you started with the town and then you went to the entire county. Yeah. So what was sort of the population there? Well, the, you know, large county, about the same size as Hidalgo County, oh, but okay. a, a real small town, you might picture a town the size of, you know, Ed Couch or Elsa. Okay. So us not having a library branch and we would have this little bookmobile, this little mobile library that would come by once a week and, and, and park in the parking lot of City Hall. And I thought, man, we can do better than this. I know we can do better than this. So, yeah, that was kind of my first taste at community activism or, you know, civic engagement, I guess. And so was that an initiative that you that you led and then you got people to kind of follow that initiative where you had other people maybe at the school or was this just kind oh, of like no, a single led? No, I also learned that you're 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 nothing without a group of people who are locked arm in arm with you. And um, somehow I got linked up with this with this former teacher of mine who had taught me way back in second grade, Mrs. Smigelski. And, um, you know, she, she just advised me on the side and kept encouraging me. And, uh, you know, we just kept trying to get more and more people involved. So, um, you know, and that also sort of piqued my interest in the political process and, 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 and politics. So I always thought that I would run for office one day. I always thought that when I was in high school. So I, I you know, applied to Georgetown University, which is located in Washington, D.C. I had mm-hmm. never been to Georgetown. I had never been to Washington, D.C. Um, I mean, I hadn't really heard of it. It was, it, it, and, and I applied to, it was the only of my really competitive schools that I got into that I applied to. So I remember showing up to college in Washington, D.C., having never seen the campus. And um, it was, it was, uh, it was, definitely transformational and for me. I was going to say, it must have been a real eye-opener to come from a really small town and then to go to a place like Washington, D.C. And, I mean, Washington, D.C. is just like 100% government America. Um, 
definitely a different, much different vibe than what we see here in the valley. So yeah, that must have been a yeah. But you know, so many similarities with the small town where I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley. So mm-hmm. um, where I grew up, it was also a very homogenous community, except it was about, if you can imagine, like 97, 98% white, mm-hmm. you know, Anglo. Mm-hmm. Um, families at the center of everything. You know, a lot of my friends and I, you've, you've, you know, it's, it's not just you living under one roof. You've also got, you know, your aunt or your uncle, or your grandma, or your grandpa. Um, and, and, and that was always really the center of everything. So when I came down to the Rio Grande Valley, in, in, in one sense, it was culture shock. Um, and when I went to DC, it was culture shock too, because I had only ever been around white people my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but there was something so familiar when I came down to South Texas. I'm like, wow, you, you know, yeah, there's a difference, you know, in race, ethnicity, but, but gosh, so many other things about the values of the community just seem so similar to my upbringing. So um, in many ways, moving to South Texas was was much more me feeling like I was back in my environment mm-hmm. than when I moved to Washington, D.C. for for college. So, OK, I'm a native to the valley. And growing up here my entire life, um, going out for me was a culture shock most people that come in from out of town who move into the valley is such a culture shock for a long time as a young person i always felt like man you know i didn't really like the valley as i've grown older i've i've really become to appreciate you know come to appreciate the valley and the culture and the values and the tight-knit group um and so i have a, a newfound appreciation for the valley over the years but as somebody who's coming in from another state, what was sort of your, what are some of the things that you really appreciate about the Valley? Like what are oh. some of the, what, what are some of the things that re- you really like? Well, I'll, I'll back up a year or two to, you know, I think really explain that. So I was in my senior year at Georgetown University. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do mm-hmm. post-graduation. Um, in, in January of my senior year, so just, you know, less than a semester to go, I applied to this program called Teach for America, um, which is, they, they used to build themselves as sort of the domestic Peace Corps. Hey, don't join the Peace Corps and go abroad. You know, we've got plenty of communities here in the U.S. that could use some additional assistance and, and, and attention. So I applied to Teach for America, and when I applied to TFA, as we call it, um, I was placed down here in the Rio Grande Valley, and um, again, is what would become a pattern for me. I moved down here, sight unseen, mm-hmm. um, and the first thing that really struck me was um, I, I, I could not believe how accepting and welcoming people were of, 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 of me. I, no credibility, no contacts, no reputation, no track record. And uh, just the real warmth from um, the families and students who I was teaching, from my fellow teachers who were lifelong educators, most of whom were from the RGV, from administration. I, I, I just, I just kept thinking, gosh, why, why is everybody so nice to me? Um, you, you know, <laughs> and it was nothing about me. It was really everything about the community. And I do think that is one of the real special attributes of, you know, and I've been to and visited and spent a lot of time in a lot of communities. I, I just haven't found one that's quite as welcoming as 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 the Valley to, uh, you know, to, to outsiders. I've been here for 25 years. You've been, you, you really? Think I, would, my, my, I got married here. 
all three of my kids have been born here. You would think that I would no longer see myself as an outsider, but you know, I, 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 I do and I don't, you mm-hmm. know, I've, I've definitely, you know, planted some real roots in this community, but, um, you know, if you're not born and raised somewhere, there's a sense where you always feel like you're, you're trying to prove that you, that you belong. Mm-hmm. So, um, so did um, you meet your wife here? I did. She's not from the Rio Grande Valley. She's uh, actually born in Taiwan, educated in Texas and California, went to Cornell University, came down here to teach. We met, fell in love, got engaged. She went off to medical school. So we were apart for four years while she was in medical school in Houston. We were married during that time. We got pregnant during that time. We had our first child during that time. And then she moved down in 2005. And um, yeah, and here we are. She's a practicing physician right now. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you meet your wife. You are you doing this? Are you doing this at the same time that you're starting idea, which we haven't gotten into? But when you're, as yes. you're starting. so everything, it seems like everything important in my life kind of took off in the year 2000. So um, I launched idea in 2000, um, my wife in 2000. So that was kind of the beginning of you know, the adult chapter of my life. And and, and really, again, I, I was teaching in Donna, Texas, fourth grade. And um, I, I, you know, the school I had, it was full of hardworking teachers, but I also saw that there was so much more potential that we just weren't tapping into. And um, as a first year teacher, um, I decided to do a little tour of Texas schools. We visited some very expensive private schools where they're charging you know, twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year. We visited some high performing charter schools and I, I, I just remember thinking, oh, how transformational would it be for our community if we had a few more education options uh, for young people and not just high schools like South Texas South Texas ISD was doing. Mm-hmm. But really from the very beginning, from early elementary. So that's what got me thinking about, in, in a way, it was kind of like the library thing all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was I was frustrated and jealous that my community didn't have a library when I was in high school. That's so and then when funny. I was down here in the valley, I thought, gosh, you know, why, why, why don't we have remarkable, nationally ranked, exceptional public schools for every child, regardless of where he or she lives, you know, which city, which colonia, which neighborhood. So that's really what got me thinking, you know, always kind of the entrepreneur thing. Okay, here's 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 the problem. I understand the problem. Now, what's 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 the solution and how do we get a coalition of people together to really start something? So that was the genesis of Idea Academy. I went to the um, the Donna ISD school board meeting um, at the end of my the end of my first year of teaching mm-hmm. pitched this idea for them of this after school program called idea academy i said i'm going to work with gr- kids in grades four five eventually six and we're gonna you know have them stay longer come on saturdays and the whole focus is going to be getting kids ready for really challenging courses in high school they approved it. I'm sure in retrospect, they wish they hadn't um, because then before we knew it, we were, uh, you know, I was taking an after school program and turning it into its own school. And we opened up on the second floor of the first Baptist church in downtown Donna, Texas in 2000. And it was a crazy, crazy experience. I was uh, 24 when we were approved, uh, you know, by the state. I was 25 when we actually got the school up and running. And, um, and, and, and I never dreamed that it would catch on in, in popularity and would become as successful as it has. So 
you found Idea Academy. Before we start getting into that chapter, are there the the library in in that initiative and taking that initiative on was definitely sounds like something that prepped you for this part of it. Was there uh, any other moments like growing up that where you felt like there was uh, a certain situation that kind of shaped you into, you know, uh, the leadership role that that you've taken on? Um, any things that sort of stand out that that really define you as a person? Well, I've, I've um, I, 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 I don't have like this, you know, like emotional this one story, but, but I mean, if, if, if everything tends to be a little bit more like strategic and pragmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my junior year, I was captain of the cross country team and I knew that the only way we were gonna build a better team is if we got better runners. So, I mean, I was just cold calling. This is before you could Facebook or message people. You had to pick up the phone and call folks. And I was calling all of the best athletes in my high school and I said, hey, come on, you gotta join the customer team. They're like, man, running sucks. That's the most <laughs> miserable part of my soccer practice or my football practice or whatever, my basketball practice, whatever sport they were really in. But I, I, I knew that um, your success is all about talent and that we had to get the absolute best talent and I was not successful at, at recruiting, um, you, you know, more people to join the team. So I was like, okay, I also realized you got to go to war mm-hmm. with the army you have and you got to encourage and motivate and, and, and you build know, up. And, yeah, and build up those who are around you. So um, I, I wish I had some story that, oh, then we won, won, we won the state championship. Like none of, none of that happened. None it's of not, that Hollywood scripted no, stuff. No, Maybe no, later no, on no, if you start it, to. It, I definitely realized, okay, the number one job of the leader is to find and build a really exceptional team. Um, so that stuck with me too when I was getting idea, you know, off the ground then up and running and started. And then, you know, probably a real pivotal experience for me was working on Capitol Hill when I was at Georgetown, you know, interning and having an opportunity to just understand um, how power in the U.S. works mm-hmm. and, um, you know, how Congress works and, um and, 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 and really that being an engaged citizen, you know, being an American, being civically involved, I, I mean, voting, it's okay. Voting is the minimum. Mm-hmm. You gotta show up and vote, but, but, but then you really get the government you deserve. Um, and the more you put into it and you see this all the time in the community, it's like, why are some people so effective at getting their way? Because they put the time and the energy into, making the case and 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 they know where power is mm-hmm. and they they know how to pull those levers of power to be able to hopefully do 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 good in the community right and you know there is that cliche that um that cliche saying of the squeaky wheel gets the grease but it's so true because if you're not going out there and you're not really um pushing those those things that are important nobody's going to hear you nobody's going to care if you don't care why should anybody else yeah and when, when, when i was getting um you know just all, all these little things i didn't realize were preparing me for being ceo of a large you know nearly billion dollar a year organization in mm-hmm. terms of revenue um but when we were getting the charter started for um well when i was in the after school program started and I knew that I had to go to the school board meeting. I, I thought to myself, I remember my congresswoman telling me one time, you never want to walk into a meeting where you don't know what the vote's going to be, um, which, which to me is an insight. Like in the movies, you always have some CEO making a presentation in front of the board and hoping and praying that they all vote his way or whatever. Um, so I, I visited every single member of the Donna ISD school board 
the night before. I knocked on their doors, I got their addresses, and I made the pitch either um, in their living room or on the front porch step or whatever the case may be. I said, I am going to, and, and they all thought that I was the only one they visited. So, um, you know, it, it just, um, it, it, it couldn't have been a more positive outcome, but you know, you, you just gotta, you, you've, you've gotta, the power of ideas and getting your ideas across in a really energetic way to get people to understand what it is you're trying to do. I, I, mean, I mean, that's that, there's no substitute for that. Is there is that where the name idea came from? No, it's, it's, it's an acronym, Individuals Dedicated to Excellence and Achievement. Um, we sort of dropped the words and just kept the acronym IDEA over the years. But 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 clever. Yeah. 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 So very cool. Very cool. Um, and so let's talk about your 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 parents. You know, they sounds like you came from some very humble upbringings, um, which, you know, with the idea students, most of the idea students, at least in the Rio Grande Valley anyway, um, come from very humble uh, upbringings, very humble beginnings. What were some of those things that, you know, uh, life lessons, um, things that your parents would say that you, because now you have, you have, you had mentioned that you have children too, right? Mm -hmm. With your wife. What are some of those things that you've kind of instilled in them where you've sort of passed those things down? Well, of, of, of course the, the neurotic fear that you always have as a parent is that you're repeating all of your parents' mistakes, but not repeating any of the great things that they did with you. So I, I certainly feel, and my wife certainly feels that we're doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't do anything with our kids that our parents made us do. I mean, um, I always had a job, um, you know, from kind of middle school on. Mm-hmm. I always had to do all the yard work. Um, I mean, and our kids, I mean, and they don't have time for it because they're shuttling themselves from, you know, to cello, to piano, to soccer, to dance, to gymnastics. And I'm, I'm even leaving a couple of out. So, you know, I, I, I've, I don't know that um, replacing work and chores with all of these, you know, more enriching activities is really the right way to go. But we've, we've, we've made that decision. And um, partly because when I went from White House, Ohio, to Georgetown University, I saw classmates who just had layer on top of layer of privilege and advantage. Mm. Um, I mean, all of the prep schools, all of the tutors, all of the trips to Europe, all of the all of the um, unpaid internships, not jobs, the unpaid internships that they could afford because they didn't have to make money um, in New York City or Chicago and that sort of thing. So um, I, I just, I couldn't believe how durable these my classmates were because they they did have all these advantages and that's another thing that I thought about at ideas you know how do we just keep layering more and more and more opportunities one on top of the other to be able to replicate um, just one safety net after another you know for our for our students well and you know when you talk about the things that your children are doing I would imagine that if they're committed to those things then you're going to make them commit to those things, right? Because like you said, you had a, a, a job in middle school. Those things teach you certain aspects of job, uh, of a job, of commitment, of responsibility, accountability, performance, right? So even though they're not necessarily doing those things that you did, it sounds like they are learning those things in 
in those types of um, environments where they're they're learning, right? They're learning about the, what they like and what they don't like. Um, well, you know, it's interesting because of our, our oldest son, he's been in uh, violin and piano since he was four or five years old. My wife's a concert violinist. And um, it, 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 it has been drudgery um, for him and therefore for my wife with practice. Mm. And it's because he's doing it out of compliance. But about a year ago, well, about two years ago, he, he, he just really got into performing arts, you know, theater performances, and then he and his buddies started a rock band. And nice. because he had this goal of putting on concerts and doing shows, I mean, he, his friends will come over and they will, they will be up until four or five o'clock in the morning practicing. We can't get them to stop right. I mean, they're out, I love that. They're out back, so we can't hear them. They're not keeping us awake. But I mean, it, it just, um, I mean, if you have a goal and you are on a mission, mm-hmm. I mean, hard work isn't work. I, I mean, it's, but, but man, if you're doing it and you don't know why you're doing it and you know the rationale and you don't care about it and you're not invested, it is just drudgery. Um, so, you know, and, 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 and that's, what we have and continue to try to do at IDEA is, um, okay, if kids are unmotivated, it, it, you know, they don't know what they're working towards. Mm-hmm. And it's not enough for us to say, you're working for college, you're working for this great job. It's more like a conversation. How do we, how do we find what it is they're passionate about and really unlock that potential to kind of, you know, you can, you can fill a pail mm-hmm. or you can kind of spark a flame. And it's way more fun to spark a flame, you know. Um, right. It's a lot more work just to feel like you're an educator kind of filling the pail, filling the pail. And it, I mean, it kind of sucks to be a kid with being treated like that too. So, um, and, and, and uh, 50,000 students were not a perfect school. There's gonna be kids listening to this saying, man, that Tom Torkelson is full of it. They are on us all the time. <laughs> That's true, uh-huh. um, but you know, it's it's any good parent is on their kids. And, and, and we look at ourselves as total arm in arm partners with, 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 with the parents of the children. We we. We want parents, we want our, our students to feel like, oh man, no matter where I go, I've got mom or dad or teacher or principal, everybody's on me. Because again, I think that that's that sort of encouragement and all that wraparound support that really helps kids thrive. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think you bring up a good point in terms of creating that spark because maybe violin wasn't really uh, what he was what he was great at or what he really wanted to do, but it, it springboarded him into something that he was you know, he I, he was able to find it through that, and I think that idea does definitely does that by exposing children to uh, you know I know that you all do a lot of field trips, you all take them to a lot of new places to experience those things, and it might be things that they may not initially think that they like, but it could spark that um, interest into something else or into something bigger. You mentioned that you started idea in your mid twenties from the time that you came up with the idea to start a charter school to the time and the first day of that, of idea charter school happening. How long was that? And what was that time period like for you? Yeah. Well, my second year of teaching in 1998 uh, was, was when we had the after school program start and then Everybody who helped me start it left. Uh, Joanne Gonzalez, now Joanne Gama, she left and moved back to Houston. Um, another woman who started with his Hannah family, Eddie, she went off to medical school. So my third year of teaching, 1999, I, it, it was disastrous. Um, all the things that were great about the program, the district started telling us we couldn't do. 
So from day one of year three in 1999, I said, man, I gotta find, I gotta find a better way to do this. So um, that's when I'd learned that there were these things, there's this thing called a charter school in Texas. And um, I wrote a letter to the state of Texas. I applied to the state of Texas and said, this is my plan for the school I wanna create. So I'm teaching during the day. I'm writing this plan in the evening. I submitted it in uh, January. I remember being on on Christmas vacation with my parents and extended family in the Florida Keys, and I was on the ocean, frantically trying to finish this document, taking all the ideas um, that we had implemented as the after-school program and figuring out how do we describe them in a compelling, cohesive way, you know, as its own school. I submitted that in January. Um, apply, um, testified for the State Board of Education in March was approved that same week. So we had March, April, May, June, July, August, six months to find a building, hire teachers, buy buses, recruit students, and by the way, not get a penny from anybody until about a week before the first day of school. Oh so that was tough. But I just kept thinking, all right, we need the teachers, we need the students, we need the building. We got those three things. Everything else will fall into place. So we focused on those three things. You know, we got the school started, as I said, very, very small school. And, 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 and um, you know, somebody said, this gentleman, Charlie Bell, Charlie and Carolyn Bell, longtime Donna family, Charlie said, Tom, before you know it, you're going to have a line out the door of kids signing up wanting to come here. I said, oh, Charlie, you're crazy. There's no way. And sure enough, you know, a couple of years later, we had more kids on the waiting list than we had kids enrolled. And you fast forward five years, so we launched the school in 2000. In 2005, um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation contacts us and says, hey, you've got the best results of, of, of any school working with your demographic of students. We wanna help you grow and scale and expand, put a plan together. And we had just been thinking about expansion at that point. So um, we put together a plan to open up. Um, oh, I think it was about See, this is 05. We wanted to open up about a dozen more schools and we put the plan together and it was going to cost like $28 million uh -huh. of private money. And then my board was like, Tom, we've never even raised a million dollars a year. How are we going to raise 28 million? And um, we had this meeting with all of our faculty and we asked everybody what we should do. And we went around and everybody said, stop growing. There's no way we should grow. We've got tons of things we got to fix here that aren't going well. Um, and I listened to everybody and they tell the story that I said, oh, to heck with it, we're going to grow anyway. But really what I did was I listened to very, very carefully to every single objection they were raising. And I thought to myself, well, they're right. If we don't solve for all these issues, we are going to fail. So to me, the answer was not let's stop. Let's let's not grow. The answer was how do we address and deal with these very legitimate critiques and concerns that that my staff and my faculty is coming up with? So um you know, the rest is sort of history. We raise all the money very quickly. Uh, one of my sayings is where there is vision, there is provision. You know, we had an ambitious vision. We had a compelling case. And, um, you know, sure enough, um, you know, funders lined up. And that was special to me because almost none of the money came from the Rio Grande Valley. It was people from outside of our community, Michael and Susan Dell and their foundation, uh, the Walton family who started Walmart and their foundation, obviously uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, people who were not from the RGV, who had no direct connection to the RGV, but just really 
believed in our community, saw the challenges, but thought that if we could help show a way in the RGV, that that would be broadly translatable to other communities. And, you know, I think to a certain extent that's, that's, that's happened. Right. And, you know, the Valley and the, the two counties are two of the most uh, impoverished counties in the entire nation. So to really start something that has taken off and now you now ideas in what four states three states? that's right I, idea we've grown from 150 students to 63,000 students wow of course you know for the record i'm i'm no longer ceo i'm founder and ceo emeritus whatever emeritus means <laughs> and um we're at oh i think it's 120 schools we're in uh texas of course all really all across texas mm-hmm. um louisiana and we're opening in Florida and Ohio in the next year, in two years, respectively. So, um, you know, we're, we're really becoming a national organization. And since 2012, um, we've raised over $800 million of outside funding wow. to, to, to fuel this growth. And to me, that's significant. There are very few organizations that have raised $800 million whose clients they are serving uh, come from modest backgrounds. Okay. Harvard raises that much, Yale, Cornell, these are all very wealthy institutions serving very wealthy um, young people. So I'm really proud the way the philanthropic community stepped up and said, we are gonna show that if you invest in kids from modest means, they can achieve at the same level as wealthy kids do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, you know, I'm on the board at UTRGV, you know, I forget the exact amount, but um, maybe it's the ballpark of UTRGV is spending about $10,000 per kid per year. I don't know what the tuition is, but you take the tuition and the state money, it's about $10,000 per kid per year. If I'm wrong, somebody can correct the record on it. But Harvard is spending about 87000 per kid per year. Wow. So think about it. You have the wealthiest kids who went to the fanciest prep schools who have all this privilege going to a college that is investing eight and a half times the amount that UTRGV is investing. And, and I mean, look at all the things that kids from UTRGV are achieving. It is amazing and it is remarkable. And um, if we wanted Harvard-like results at UTRGV, all we would need to do is be able to spend Harvard-like resources. I mean, you're telling me of Guy Bailey and that team, if they had $80,000 per kid per year to spend, I mean, all of the great work would only be enhanced. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we like to say, oh, you know, the Valley's poor. Well, uh, uh, Okay, in some ways the valley is poor, but um, what, what, what I have seen is that when you invest in communities, uh, those communities perform and they can go toe to toe. We can go toe to toe in the RGV, all communities across Texas um, with the most affluent you know, cities in the US. And if you look at the national rankings for high schools, I think seven of the top 20 are idea schools from really? the RGV. And I was talking to uh, Jay Matthews, the Washington Post reporter who puts out that list every year. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote a column recently. I, I don't know if it's been released yet, but he may have shown me the advanced copy. I think it's probably coming out in a few days. When he started this list 25 years ago, none of the schools um, had had a significant population of low-income students, none of them. And now we've taken up like a third of the spots just from the RGV. So um, our kids can do it when you challenge and you motivate and you expect a lot from them. And so since you've started this, you're, I guess you're going on 20 years, have you already hit 20 years? 
now? The idea is starting its 20th year. This is our 20 year anniversary. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, you've had a lot of students go through there. What are some of those students' stories that are sort of the most memorable and the most heartwarming? Because, you know, I'm sure you've got just a ton of really great stories uh, from uh, of children who have defied the odds and gone and achieved beyond um oh i mean there, there's the so many stories you'll, you'll just have to stop you'll have to cut me off at some point because I'll, I'll, I'll be telling too many of them the um you know we've had 14 graduating classes 14 years of 100 percent of our kids applying to college of our kids being accepted to college and we don't know what will happen this fall this is kind of a weird fall about what it means to matriculate mm -hmm. uh, but for the previous 13 years every year but one we've had 100 percent of those kids set foot on a college campus for the first day of their freshman year and um you know i was uh, i feel like i lived my life in an airport i was coming back uh i don't know where i was coming back from it i was in houston and um uh, there was a young man who had a, a wharton shirt on and I was like, oh, wow, I wonder who's this kid from Wharton coming on this Houston flight back to the RGV. And he said, Mr. Torkelson. And he recognized me. And um, he introduced himself, a young man from Quest College Prep. And uh, I, I remembered him right away because he had taken and passed 15 AP exams with fives, which is the highest score you can get. And so I, I remembered his story from a couple of years ago. And mm -hmm. he was back giving some lecture on entrepreneurship. Um, to, he's still in college and he's, I think, talking to some high school kids about entrepreneurship, which I thought was pretty amazing. That's awesome. And, um, you know, this other young man, um, Omar, who we, we told a story a lot and I'm always sensitive about telling somebody else a story for them, but, um, he was living in Matamoros. He essentially ran away from his, from the orphanage he was in and he crossed the Rio Grande in, 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 you know, dark of night with his two year old brother on his shoulders. And wow. he gets to Brownsville and he finds this aunt who had her own issues and um, sort of lived there, sort of didn't live anywhere, finds his way into our school, doesn't speak a lick of English by his senior year. He's fluent in English, fluent enough to take all of his advanced placement courses. And he's just a few months from graduating and he's driving to his job at McDonald's and he gets pulled over for a speeding violation or something. And they say, where's your driver's license? I don't have it. Why not? I'm not documented. They put him into the detention center in Raymondville for the last couple of months of his senior year, and his teachers are shuttling the homework back and forth. Um, I don't know how those teachers and that principal get him sprung from that detention facility, graduates, goes off to A&M Corpus Christi, um, ends up going to the military. I run into him a couple of years later, and um, he pulls this thing out of his I don't even know what this was. I mean, you don't have to carry a citizenship card with you, but whatever the citizenship card was, mm -hmm. um, I mean, he was, he was so proud to say, hey, you know, I'm I'm legal because um, wow. he would always say it's not illegal to dream. And, and it wouldn't, but he really oh, meant that. it is kind of illegal to dream. Um, and that's why we call them dreamers and right. they're not here legally. But I, I just and, and, and uh, you know, those sort of stories, I mean, just happening all the time. We've got super high performing kids who have had a lot of privilege in their life at idea mm -hmm. yeah, students like Omar and a whole bunch of students kind of in between on the spectrum. And that is the challenge as a public educator is how do you find out where that child is and meet him, meet her where she is and keep helping him, keep helping her raise the bar and, you know, keep, keep getting to the next level. So it's tough. It's tough as teachers as such as tough as educators and teachers. I mean, that's really where the magic happens is yeah. in that classroom. Yeah. So, I mean, you have students like that, that have 
gone above and beyond and excelled, right? Um, there's a lot of people out there that uh, have a ton of talent, um, a ton of great ideas, but you know, sometimes those ideas don't come to fruition. So what, what are some of those kind of qualities you feel or that you've maybe seen in either your students or uh, obviously, you know, a lot of very um, well-to-do, very high-ranking business people. What are some of those it's, qualities uh, that you kind of see? I mean, it's a cliche, but it is, it is, it is, it is the stick to itness, the perseverance, that not taking no for an answer. You know, if you fall down six times, just get up seven times, kind of all those cliches. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it just, um, you know, um, you, just if you're an entrepreneur, through. it starts with one, one idea, one person who just is not going to let that idea die. And they're going to, you know, again, get a coalition of people together who can make that come true. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that's what, what, what I've sort of seen across, you know, I've had a chance to meet a lot of really re remarkable leaders and I've just seen that grit and tenacity and, and, and luck. Mm -hmm. I mean, how lucky was I that I heard about Teach for America, that they placed me in the RGV, that that board happened to say yes to me, that we happened to have had charter school legislation, which wouldn't have been around if I had arrived just five years earlier, that That's I right. miraculously made it through the application process, which, and there were little miracles that happened along the way there that nothing at all to do with me. Um, you know, a whole different podcast story on that one. And, um, and, 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 and that the Gates Foundation just happened to hear about us. And I asked them for a couple hundred thousand dollars. They said, that's way too small. They sent experts down to help us put together a real plan. Um, I mean, it, it just, yeah. So it's hard work and it's talent, but man, there's also a lot of luck. Mm -hmm. uh, and and people who tell you otherwise are just not being, you know, totally They're not being honest. 100% honest. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But, but, you know, a lot of people have the same opportunities and they squander them. So um, the, the, the hard work and perseverance is there too. Well, and, you know, I think from a lot of outsiders looking in, and it's not just with your story, but I think any success story, when you when you take a look at somebody in, uh, who has achieved and done things beyond what um, maybe people deem normal, um, there have had to have been some crazy challenges, right? Some there's have had to have been some downtimes where you're like not sure how things are going to pan out. Well, always, always, you know, 2012 is an example. All of our schools were in the Valley. We decided we were going to open up schools in Austin and San Antonio. We go to Austin. We're going to do a partnership with Austin ISD. They had some low performing schools on the East side of the town. They wanted us to help them turn around. I get up there for the first parent meeting and there are protesters. There are picketers. Um, I mean, a lot of racism there about, you know, oh, all of you people from the valley, from the border region, they kept calling us the border region. Even even the Austin American statesman, you know, this this unaccountable group from the border coming to our state capital really? to show us how to do education. I, I mean, I mean, it, it just was, you know, kind of the, you know, the big town snobbery, like what could we possibly learn from, you know, a bunch of hicks in the Rio Grande Valley. I mean, <laughs> th 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 that was sort of the, um, th that was sort of the, the, the vibe I got is mm -hmm. I just thought we were a bunch of country hicks, you know? Um, and, um, and it turned out that the union, um, mounted a very aggressive response. Um, they pulled the contract that was approved. Um, we were we were essentially shut down at the end of our first year, and we had a decision to make: Are we going to keep 
keep these schools going or are we going to pull up stakes and 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 put our you know tail between our legs and march home and we said no we got these kids who believe in us we have these teachers who believe in us so we found a way to find a way and to find a way now we have um, I think this year it's uh, 16 schools in in Austin wow so that's fantastic I mean and you know you go from the other aspect to all of this which is really interesting to me is you go to teach for America sounds like if you were going to to Georgetown you had some political aspirations but um, you become a teacher you've always sounds like you've always had an entrepreneurial spirit and that you've always kind of executed on those thoughts and ideas so how do you go from that teacher mindset to really this is beyond uh, a charter school because what I don't think I've and I don't know, are there any other charter schools in America quite the size of, of yours? There's a few. I mean, we're, we are, we are, depending on how you count, mm-hmm. um, we're either the largest or among the largest, uh, getting some technicalities, but, but we're, and we're certainly the fastest growing mm-hmm. and nobody has yet combined growth and quality the way that idea has. Some mm-hmm. people, maybe their results are a little bit better, not that much, <laughs> but, but, a little bit better, but their growth is a lot slower. There might be a few groups that, you know, tried growing a little bit faster, but they've had a little bit less consistency with the results. So we, we just have been, okay, we're going to, we're going to p- keep it like the engine. It's right on the, it's right on the edge of that red line. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to cross the red line. Maximum RPMs before things. And, and of course you don't really have a red line that you're looking at as the CEO. So you have to, you have to try to figure out, oh, okay, Am I pushing it too hard? Is it hard enough? You know, how do I know if it's too hard? How do I know if it's too far? And um, and that's just where the ability to listen and um, you know get in campuses, talk to teachers, hear what hear what they're saying, listen to parents, hear what students are saying to really try to gauge you know what's happening. Um, I, I will typically get our our our, uh, custo- our faculty, our custodians together. I'll just say our our, our janitors, mm-hmm. and um, the way I'll introduce myself is. I'm Tom Torkelson and I'm the most important person in the organization. And they're all like, who is this jackass? (laughs) And I'm like, no, I'm the most important person. And yet if I don't come to work, nobody notices. If you don't come to work, everybody notices. People know right away the custodians aren't here. Stuff starts piling up, you know, rooms aren't clean. The quality of life for everybody drops right away. So if I'm important and I don't come to work and nobody cares, and you miss a day of work and everybody knows, what does it tell you? It really tells you, you guys actually are way more important than the CEO mm-hmm. to the students and to the families. And, and that's how we have always run the organization and, 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 um, and, and not just as a cliche. I mean, when, when COVID happened, mm-hmm. we, had, we had zero layoffs. We didn't lay off custodians. We didn't lay off secretaries food service employees, um, you know, we said, Hey, we're going to, you can't say people are the most important thing. And then when times get tough, the first thing you do is ax 15% right, of your payroll. So you definitely have to take care of the people that take care of you. Yeah. Especially, um, those that are in the trenches, like the janitors and the teachers and the frontline people. Um, those are the ones that you really have to take care of because those are, you know, a lot of the branding representation of what ideas is all about. Let's talk about currently where idea is at and where you are at with idea. Yeah. Um, well, idea is in a great place. 
I'm in a great place. We're no longer in a great place together. Um, you know, I, I was excited to see idea through to 100,000 students by 2022. And then we had a kind of a back of a napkin plan of how to get to a million students. But um, look, I, I, I just, um, I've never run the enterprise like I'm a school superintendent. I've always acted as though I'm a private sector CEO and I've used the tools that business CEOs have. Um, when we were asked to go to Ohio and Florida and West Texas and Louisiana and Fort Worth and Houston, uh, I said, look, I, I'm, I'm, we're not gonna be able to guarantee quality and do all this if we're you know, tr trying to fly commercials. So we chartered airplanes, we chartered jets, we had a long-term lease on a jet, um, and, and, and we used no you know, public money for it, no state money. Mm -hmm. We used private funds for it. Um, we had a, a, a basketball suite with the San Antonio Spurs. You know, we've got a big relationship with them. You know, David Robinson gifted us a building. He's part owner. Um, he gifted us a building and some other, um, cash gifts that equaled, I don't know, probably $20 million. Wow. So, you know, we had about a quarter million dollar marketing relationship with the Spurs every year. Again, not paid with public money. Mm -hmm. um, and our teachers went, our principals went, our custodians went, mostly from the San Antonio area, but we'd have schools from the Valley that would be able to make it up there as well. And some schools from Austin, um, you know, we had a very nice apartment in San Antonio as well, so that when people were in San Antonio, we weren't wasting money on, 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 Hotel on, on hotels and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and we bonus our people, you know, 12, 13, 15 million dollars a year total. Um, wow. I mean, principals could get twenty, thirty thousand dollar bonuses. You know, um, senior executives even more. You know, my bonus package was quite robust, uh, but it was all based on hitting goals and 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 and, and, and performance and benchmarks. But um, it became very controversial, and um, and and you know, districts would say, "Well, we don't have a jet," and I said, "Well." Really? You don't have a jet to get from South McAllen to North McAllen? I'm shocked. Uh, but we were trying to solve a problem that no other school system in America had. We had schools that were 2,000 miles apart from each other. Mm -hmm. We were opening, you know, a couple of dozen schools a year. And it became controversial, and I don't think that I handled that controversy particularly well. Um, and... Um, you know, of a wonderful board of directors. I mean, I think the narrative out there, to the extent people even care about what happened, is that you know the board bounced me or made me leave. I mean, it, it just it, it was. We had a very frank conversation. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, half the board was in tears when I announced I was going to leave. You know, mm -hmm. I was I was very tearful as well. I just didn't see a way that I was going to be able to conform to acting like a ISD superintendent and continue our high growth, high energy, you know, man, we're gonna make it happen no matter what approach. And mm -hmm. um, that was gonna have to change because the scrutiny was there and, you know, funders were getting upset by it. Legislators who had been supportive of us were like, Tom, this is, you know, this is gonna really cause a bunch of headaches. Um, and, um, you know, I had a, a series of conversations with the board and it seemed like we had a wonderful leadership team mm -hmm. and we, you know, what? I mean, I essentially, I mean, come on, I've been running this organization for 20 years. If I can't hand it off to somebody else and have them just keep hitting repeat every day, you know, what kind of CEO have I been? So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to leave, but I also felt like um, it was the right moment for me to pursue what was next. So, um, you know, and I just have nothing but love and joy in my heart for all of those board members and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the supporters of IDEA. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it just was... Uh, 
being able to do that for 20 years, for two decades. Not a lot of people get to do something like this for two decades and, and, and leave their imprint. So I feel, you know, nothing but, you know, positive thoughts. Yeah, it was, you know, tough transition. And, um, you know, but I also realized like my job idea does not define who Tom Torkelson is. That's, it's That's part right. of me. It's part of my story, mm-hmm. but man, I got so many other things I want to do and, um, other problems I want to solve. So I've, I've been excited about the opportunity to be able to, you know, do some other things as well. Yeah. And, you know, I really feel like idea has done, I can't even count how many unprecedented things, um, beyond what people's expectations were there. You, you all have done way beyond, um, what I think a lot of schools are capable of a lot of charter schools are capable of. And for me, you know, as an outsider looking in, I really felt like based off of everything that I read, you know, some of those decisions that are, are made are because of, uh, you know, time. But in a lot of those decisions, though, an unprecedented type of scale requires unprecedented types of decisions. And so, you know, to me as an outsider, I, I really felt like, I could understand the way that the way that things were being done and why they were being done because when you look at idea as more of a of a taking that business mindset yeah. approach versus an ISD mindset approach but but there's there's also a sense to which it was really indefensible mm. because I wasn't cognizant of the political environment we were operating in and outside of Texas, across the country, charter schools are under attack. And this had been picked up in the national media. And I had, you know, people who I knew who were running charter schools being like, man, like I'm getting questions about this out here in California or New York city or Ohio. And man, you've made things difficult for me. And uh, nobody cared about the explanation that, Hey, it's not, it's not public money. It's, you know, private money and that sort of thing. It, it, It was, it was creating challenges and it was creating problems. So, um, you know, I, I just, um, um, big lesson, um, you know, I was not CEO of Apple or Amazon or, you know, Lone Star National Bank or HEB. Um, you know, we, we are an organization that is very sensitive to, um, um, you know, elected officials and public funding and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I needed to, you know, calibrate the way that I was operating and um, I didn't calibrate and I didn't want to calibrate mm-hmm. and I was irritated that I had to calibrate. So I, I think it was time for, you know, somebody else, um, pass the torch. Yeah. And- yeah. Somebody else who's going to be a little bit more, you know, conforming to kind of the norms of K-12 and look, it is pathetic. If you are in K-12, you have to operate in it almost like this, poverty like mentality Mm -hmm. um i mean the way that we underfund k-12 education that we underpay teachers that i mean it just um you know so 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 given all that you know it was yeah yeah. it was it was it was time it was it was time it was time time. when you think about the lives that you've impacted not just the students but the students families the teachers the faculty the staff uh, the experiences that you've been able to create for all of those people involved. I mean, that's pretty profound in its own right. That's and been very gratifying. And, and you know, the, the, the 
kids who I love the most, I, I kissed every single night. Mm -hmm. uh, my children mm -hmm. went to my schools. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of people start schools and they're good enough for other people's kids, but not for their kids. And mm -hmm. I said, no, these are not just the best schools in the Valley. I want to create the best schools in America and they're good enough for, for my children. So, I mean, that was always my, you know, my, my approach. If it's not good enough for my child, then I got to make the school better because I can't say it's good enough for somebody else's kid, but not for mine. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And so, okay. So, um, you all are parting ways. Where are you currently at now? And What's what's the next chapter well, I, I, for Tom? I started a I'm CEO of Choose to Succeed, a San Antonio-based organization that's working to recruit and grow uh, more charter schools, um, you know, across Bear County. Um, and I'm very excited to be in that position. Obviously, I'm still living here in the Rio Grande Valley, spending a lot of time up there in Bear County and um, you know the San Antonio area. So I, I'm, I'm a great organization. It's got a great mission. And then I'm also cooking up, you know, kind of my next big entrepreneurial venture as well. So um, I think that's coming along really well. And, and I'm excited to talk about that next time I'm on your show. Oh, you can't leave us in suspense like that. Well, maybe you can. That might actually be a little bit of a podcast. cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. Hey, come on. And then that, it, way that, that way people will be like, yes. I want to know. If people made it through an hour of this podcast, <laughs> they deserve a little bit of, you know, cliffhanger drama. Well, we're going to kind of clip it too, right? So we're going to get the best parts. But man, I'm really excited to to know a little bit more about what you have kind of in the works. And you make a really great point in that. Uh, I watch master classes. You're familiar with master class. Uh, I've, I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. Yes. Okay. So uh, master classes, you know, the most professional people in a particular industry teaching kind of what they know about that industry. And one of the master class uh, teachers is Herbie Hancock. No. Yeah. And uh, Herbie Hancock in one of the very first, you know, lessons that he's got is he says, you know, you are not your profession and you are not you should not be defined by your profession. You, you are defined way more beyond than whatever your role is in your job or, or your profession. And so I really love that that insight of understanding that as much dedication, as much effort, as much energy, everything, everything of you, I would imagine has gone into this organization for you to move on to that next chapter and flip that page and create that, you know, it's essentially a blank page. You can create whatever you want. And now you're doing it with experience, networks, talent, um, resources. I mean, so it's exciting to see what that flipping that page is going to be about. So I'm really excited for you. So congratulations on that. I Thank think you. that's amazing. Um, so, okay. As we wrap up, when you think about those things, if somebody's watching this and, you know, sort of like me wondering, like, how do you do it? What do you tell yourself? Because there is no person that's more influential to a person than themselves because, Every day you wake up, even at night, in the middle of the night, if you wake up, you're constantly talking your, to yourself. You're constantly telling yourself things. You're constantly coming up with these ideas, thoughts, visions, outlooks. Um, what does Tom tell Tom? Like, how, how do you, what, what is it that you, how do you, what's your sort of outlook on, 
on things. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I, I, I just uh, this is a big question. It's an important one. I don't want to make people's eyes glaze over as I'm telling it. But uh, look, th- th- there's, um, you know, my, my wife would say, okay, just stop. It's enough to have schools in the valley. You know, why do you want to go to San Antonio? What makes you think you can do it? Um, why are you going to go to Midland, Texas? Why are you going to go to El Paso, to Houston? Why, why a new state? Um, and, and, and why, 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 like, why, why do you think that you can do this? Um, and I because I think I can do it. And my job is to get everybody else to realize that we can do it and we can do it together. And um, just the power of casting vision, of talking about this future that you are trying to create and the difference it'll make and how we're going to do it and, man, how we're going to feel when we've all gotten to the top of that mountain together only to, okay, let's go find the next you know, Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so there, there, there's that, but I mean, I mean, gosh, don't ever wait, um, to do something when everybody is clapping and saying, you can do it. And we believe in you. And no, no, it, I mean, it is, it often starts change in an idea. It, it, it starts with that constituency of one person and you gotta be able to bring people along. But I mean, it's not like I just cook up these ideas. I mean, I'm seeing other people doing things mm. and I'm just taking the best, you know, I'm, okay. A friend of mine started a charter school that I visited. The school's not that great. I could do some, at least this good, you mm-hmm. know? So that was kind of inspiring. Oh, wow. They're, they're, they're doing schools all over the U S well, they're doing it. You know, why can't we do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so just, and, and then even like I'll, I'll go and I'll visit a school and I'll think, okay, this is one of my schools. It's a different school. What are all the ways that this school is better? What are the insights? And oh, how do I, how do I go back and create that change with an idea? So I mean, it just um, people say, oh, Tom, you're so creative, you're so innovative. Well, my creativity is being able to steal the best of everybody else's ideas and put them together in a cohesive package that actually works. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, there's almost nothing at all creative about what I'm doing. It's just, just, you know, yeah, the, the be- taking the best parts of, of what works and yeah. then bringing them together. It's like Boeing, you know, Boeing, they don't make the engines. They don't make the wings. They don't make the electronics. They take a, maybe a bad example because they're falling out of the sky left and right, <laughs> but they're taking, I mean, they, but, but boy, it's complicated to put that airplane together. Uh-huh. And that's what Boeing knows how to do. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I, you know, that's my thing too, is just taking all these parts. All and the being, best pieces of yes. something and creating something new, better. Yeah, something that flies and soars and, you know, doesn't crash and burn. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I don't even know if we mentioned it during the podcast, but I was thinking about like the way that you've executed um, Idea Academy has been very much so constructing the airplane in mid-flight. Yes, and it's because I'd fallen on my face. It was 2006, 2007. Nothing was working. We had expanded our first schools. Quality was all over the place. People thought I was doing a horrible job leading, and they were right. And um, the Gates Foundation said, okay, Tom, you seem like you're a bit of a mess, <laughs> but we believe in you as an entrepreneur. So they got me this remarkable executive coach, Noel Tishy, business professor from the Uni- University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Wow. He, uh, when Jack Welch was the best CEO in America, when he was running GE, back mm-hmm. when GE was the most valuable corporation on the planet, um, uh, Noel did all of the leadership development and sort of management strategy for Jack. While he was still a professor. 
And Noel said, I'm going to teach you to do all the things that Jack Welch did. And when you mess up, I'm going to tell you you messed up. And I'm going to watch him do, going to do it alongside you. So that was a pivotal moment for me was getting this, I mean, you talk about master class, you know, having someone of, of Noel's talent who would help Jack become a corporation that had 400,000 employees wow. on every continent that, 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 that humans inhabit. Um, I mean, I mean, that was another one of those just growth opportunities there um, that, that without that, again, luck. Oh, what if Noel tissue would not have come in my life? You know, I might have exited the organization, you know, 12 years ago because things were just falling apart. But um, the right person, the right time, you know, place right on my path. So that that, 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 that was really helpful as well. So vision, uh, pig-headed discipline and, you know, drive, and then a little bit of luck. Yeah. Kind of all brought you here. Yeah. So what would, what advice would you give a person who's maybe thinking big, has a big idea, um, wants to scale the way that you, the way that you've scaled, what advice would you give them? You know, look one step, one day at a time. I mean, we did not get to a hundred thousand kids in, 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 in one year. Um, and, and look, I, I just, um, I didn't start idea thinking we were going to grow and expand. Um, I was, it was the most organic process in the world, identifying a problem, you know, being in the community, hearing from students, from parents about their frustrations and saying, okay, how can I solve that? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll, I'll talk with business school folks and they're like, oh, I want to come up with this, you know, I want to start, so I want to do a plan. I'm thinking, okay, you're not going to come up with the plan in your, in your dorm room, writing a business plan and get out there in the field, um, look around, find a problem that you're excited to solve. And that's, I mean, that, that, that's, that's how to it. do it. To me, that's the creative process, mm -hmm. you know, not locking yourself away by yourself and thinking big, brilliant thoughts that, that doesn't, maybe it works for some people, but the entrepreneurs I know their, their, their ideas come from being in the field mm -hmm. and just working like heck to get those, those solutions in place. Yeah. Roll, rolling your sleeves up and just getting in the trenches and getting dirty and just figuring figuring it out, just working through it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're cliches, but they're cliches for a reason. I well, mean, it really is true. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you think about those things, if you're hearing it from people who have experienced that kind of success, well, there's gotta be some truth into that. Right. So Tom, thank you, my friend. Thank you, Jerry. I really, really, I, I wish we had more time, but I really appreciate your time today, man. Um, this has been fantastic. Um, hopefully once your next, once this, uh, entrepreneurial, I guess next chapter starts, you might want to come back and talk to us about how that's going. Yeah. Sounds great, man. It's a deal. Awesome. Thanks, Jerry. All right. Thank Keep you. Up. Appreciate it. Hey, cheers. Cheers. I'm going.